Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, we are in the last week of this series that we have called Jesus Stories, where we have just been working our way through the parables of Jesus. And it's taken us five months, and you could make the case that over the course of those five months, we haven't even covered everything that could be considered a parable that ever comes from the mouth of Jesus. But our heart, more than anything, behind this entire series has been that we wanted to have a season as a church where we are simply marinating in the teachings of Jesus. So we might hear what he has to say and might experience this kingdom that he has come to establish. So as we start making our way into our text for today, uh, I want us to have that in mind, and I want us to have in mind this series as a whole because I want to build directly off of some of the things Rick said last week as he was setting the stage for his sermon because we're in the same section of teaching that Rick introduced us to last week. Uh, We're going to be right at the tail end of Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible and want to open it up or pull it up on a device or get one out of from underneath the chair in front of you. And Rick showed us last week that in this section of teaching, Jesus is more than anything preparing his followers for what life will be like when he is no longer with them. Because following God's call, trusting in God's plans will look far different when Jesus is no longer physically present with them, especially with what is to come in the next few days. Because it will sure look like failure for Jesus and the disciples as Jesus goes to the cross, but it will not remain that way. And so Jesus is broadening the perspective of his disciples so that they can see beyond the next few days all the way to the end of time. And our passage for today is the grand finale for that section of teaching. And yet, even though it sounds a lot like a parable and it's being included in this series, it doesn't really fit that definition. If you open up basically any book on the parables, or at least any book that I have looked at, they will include this parable typically towards the tail end of the book, and it will always begin with, well, you know, technically this isn't really a parable, but it sounds like a parable, so it should be included here, and I guess I feel obligated to give that same disclaimer. And this isn't really a parable because at the end of the day, Jesus is not telling us a hypothetical story. Jesus will use imagery, we'll see, and that makes it sound like a hypothetical story, makes it sound similar to the parables we've looked at over the course of this series, but ultimately he is describing reality, using creative imagery to describe that reality, but not just giving us a hypothetical And I think for that reason, the story from Jesus is pretty straightforward, or at least more straightforward than a lot of the parables that we've seen. And Jesus comes right out and says what he means here, more so than he does at other times. But because it's more straightforward, it's pretty stark. As Jesus shows us pretty clearly what behavior will be rewarded and what will be condemned at the end of time. And so if we desire life with our God now and forever... We need to listen carefully to what Jesus has to say in this passage about what the end holds for each and every one of us. 
And I'm sure at least for some of us, hearing words like end of time and final judgment sounds pretty uh, dour or, or heavy, but while Jesus is speaking of these significant things and gets at them pretty directly in this passage, I think what he is getting at is something that is pretty significant for all of us because it's something that we all wonder about from time to time, if not more often. And the question at the end of it all is, am I okay when I get to the end of the story, will I be okay? If you've been a committed follower of Jesus for your entire life, or if you just wandered into this building for the first time this morning, my guess is you are looking for an answer to that question. Because death comes for all of us. But by the time we get to the end of the story, it's too late to do anything to change the situation. And so we spend our days trying to make sure we're okay, wondering what we can do in the present to ensure the future will work out positively for us. We might not speak about it that directly, but that question lingers throughout our day to day. Am I okay? Is life going well for me? Is the trajectory I am on one that I want to continue following? And sure, the answer to that question of whether or not we are okay ultimately rests in Jesus. But for a lot of us, even if we are a follower of Jesus and are trusting in him for the end of the story, there might be all sorts of other things we look to in the meantime to try to make sure everything's going to work out for us. If I were to ask you how things are going, if I were to ask you if you're okay, I don't know how you would respond. You might respond with something like, yeah, things are great. I just got promoted at work. You might respond, yeah, things are good. The kids are doing well in school. You might respond, yeah, you know, uh, the economy's weird right now, but our accounts are still holding steady, so we're doing pretty well. You might say, yeah, I mean, did you see how the Vikings played on Thanksgiving Day? And none of those things are bad in themselves. But the satisfaction they bring will never last forever. I hate to be the one to break the news that the Vikings will probably lose a football game between now and the end of time, but it's probably true. And so if we're looking to be truly okay, not just right now, not just for today, but for all time, we need to hear what Jesus is saying in this passage. Because if he is right in what he says here, that means that the only tr way to truly know if we are okay is to love people the way he has loved us. Let's look at our passage in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the, the kingdom prepared for you since creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus will one day return, and it will be an incredible day when he does. He refers to himself there, you notice, as the Son of Man, this title that comes from Daniel chapter 7 of this figure that comes and he looks like a human being, but he comes before God and is given all authority to rule over all things forever, and Jesus uses that title for himself to show us that is who he is, that is what he has come to do. He will reign forever, and that will be made perfectly clear on the day when he returns. And when that day comes, he will be like a shepherd who separates the sheep from the goats. And scholars debate when and why a shepherd would do this work in Jesus' day, and we don't need to get lost in all of those weeds this morning, but what's important, I think, for us to know is that this act of separating sheep and goats is something that would happen from time to time, and it's something that could only be done by a shepherd that knew what they were doing. I mean, not just anyone can walk out into a herd and automatically separate out sheep and goats. You have to know the, know the herd. You have to be able to tell them apart if it's muddy, if it's gross, if they're dirty. You have to be able to tell who is who. Only a qualified shepherd can do this sort of separating, and Jesus is a qualified shepherd. So he places those he calls sheep on his right in the position of greater honor, and he places those he calls goats on his left. And to those on his right, he welcomes them into a dwelling prepared for them in the presence of God for all eternity. And he explains why in verses 35 and 36. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I needed clothes. You provided them. I was sick. You cared for me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. I was in need and you did what you could to help. All things that if we're being honest are pretty straightforward. Some of them require maybe a little more of us than others. I mean, in Jesus' day, if you're in prison, you're dependent on friends and family bringing you food and clothing, so something like that is a big deal. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't describe anything here that's like moving mountains, I don't think. I mean, there are things that we would probably all agree are good things. It's just there's nothing in here like if you do it one time, you're going to get a medal of honor or something. And yet at the same time, they are beyond the normal call of duty. They're good things that we would appreciate being done for us, but we're not expecting like laws to be on the books to expect people to go visit people who are sick. They're simply good deeds done for someone in a vulnerable situation. And Jesus says to this group on his right, they have done these things for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, which means by extension they have done these things for him. And then Jesus turns to the group on his left and says they have not done these things. And because they have not, Jesus condemns them to eternal separation from him because of their lack of concern for the least of these. 
which has demonstrated their lack of concern for him. And if you notice, everyone in this story on both sides is surprised at Jesus' words to them. Those who are on the right are surprised because it never crossed their mind that they were doing these things in direct service of Jesus. And the people on the left are surprised because, sure, they ignored those people who were hurting, but they never connected the dots that they were doing that because they had something against Jesus because they weren't following Jesus. No one thinks they did or did not do something because of Jesus in this passage. Their actions were simply the fruit of who they were. And yet, apparently... How we act towards the least of these reveals what is true about us at our core. So if Jesus is saying that so much hinges around how we act toward the least of these, then who are these people? Well, if you notice, Jesus defines them as the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, which, if I can be honest, I think complicates things on both sides of the equation. Because if Jesus had just said, you cared for my brothers and sisters. Then we could go maybe a more conservative route and really narrow the focus and say you only take care of those who are followers of Jesus. If someone is committed to Jesus, if they've said yes to following Jesus, then sure, we'll meet them halfway. We'll do what we can to help them. But until then, they're on their own. But if Jesus had just said you took care of the least of these and stopped there, we could maybe go a more liberal route and say, okay, well, you know, it must not matter if they, what they think about Jesus. It must not matter if we tell them about Jesus. We just got to take care of them. If someone's hurting, let's give them what they need. No questions asked, no follow-up, no nothing. Just, just address the need and move on. And yet Jesus does neither. He says, you took care of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So what do we make of this? Well, I don't think Jesus is saying everything that could ever be said on the matter in this one passage, and so it's worth zooming out to read this passage along with the rest of Scripture. And when we do that, we see that God is concerned with every part of someone who is hurting. So yes, Jesus says we should be concerned about members of the family of God who are hurting. That's absolutely true. But you will have a hard time reading the rest of Scripture and find and reaching the conclusion that that's the only people that God cares about. God's concern for the hurting extends far beyond our questions of who is in and who is out, who's worthy of care and who is not. In fact, if our approach to this passage is to ask, okay, then how, how far do we narrow the field? Who do we actually care for here? I think we might be asking the wrong question. This passage is less concerned with us helping the right people and more concerned about what our care for those who can do nothing for us in return reveals about who we truly are and whether or not our actions towards those is a result of the transformation Jesus has brought into our lives. Because you can learn a lot about a person by observing how they act towards people who can do nothing for them. If you can imagine, let's say you went out to lunch with a new coworker and you were trying to get to know them and you were really enjoying their company, you were having great conversation, everything was going well, and you get up, you go to the bathroom, and on your way back, before your new coworker can see that you are within earshot, you find them just berating your waiter. That probably reveals something to you about who they are more so than the conversation you've had with them up to that point. Or if we can take a similar situation, let's say you have a new coworker and you invite them over to your house for dinner. And you're in the kitchen getting things ready and, and they're out sitting in the living room and you go out to tell them that dinner's ready and before they see you come into the room, you notice that they're down on the ground playing with your kid, getting to know them, 
joining in with whatever it is that they're doing. That probably reveals something to you far more than you'll learn from asking them where they went to college or anything like that. And the difference between the two groups of people in this passage is not that one did good things and one did bad things. Jesus says that one group did good things to those who were not going to help them in return and one side did not. And because Jesus identifies so closely with his people, because Jesus cares so deeply for people like you and me, that means that when we view others as objects, just through the lens of what they can do for us, we are not seeing them as God sees them, we are not loving them as God loves them. But when we simply love people and treat them as Jesus has treated us, and because Jesus cares for people so deeply, our actions of service towards others are actions of service to Christ. Jesus calls us to care for the hurting. And caring for the least of our brothers and sisters is not done to put up walls to say we'll only help these people. It's done so that we can bring true healing. Because anyone dealing with the sort of things that Jesus describes in these verses has a physical need. Someone who's hungry needs food, but no matter who they are, they also have a deeper spiritual need. So we care for the least of these, and we care for our brothers and sisters because Jesus is concerned with the needs of the whole hurting person, both physical and spiritual. We are not to ignore one or the other. And when we care for the least of these among our brothers and sisters, we are loving others in such a way so that they can experience true healing in every part of who they are. In light of the fact that Jesus holds authority over all things, this is how Jesus commands us as his followers to live in the world. So as you hear all of that, you might, you might be asking the question of how this works because if I'm being honest, as I read these verses, it sure sounds like Jesus is saying, here are all the things you have to check off your list if you want me to stamp, stamp your passport and let you into heaven. So is Jesus saying we need something more than grace to be okay with him? Well, in short, no. Jesus isn't calling us to earn grace, but he is calling us to be formed by grace. He's not saying, here are all the things you have to do if you want me to like you. He's saying that if your understanding of what Jesus has done in your life doesn't lead to you caring for others in this way, you haven't actually understood who he is. Because loving God leads to loving people. Because when you're actually participating in something, no matter what it is, you can't be formed. You're, you can't help but be formed by it. At our rehearsal dinner the night before our wedding, my dad got up and said a few words to everyone that was there uh, before we ate dinner that night. And some of you have met my dad. You know it's pretty obvious that he's not from Minnesota as soon as he opens his mouth, which is okay, uh, because he's lived in Missouri his entire life. So when he talks, you can tell that he doesn't live here. And so my dad gets done speaking that night, uh, and as soon as he gets done, Carrie O'Neill comes up to me and says, why don't you talk like your dad? She apparently finds him a more compelling public speaker than she finds me. And I had this, I said, well, I, I don't, I live here, I guess. I guess that's the difference. I don't know. 
I haven't set out in the years that I've lived here. I haven't tried to sound less like I'm from Missouri, but the longer I don't live in Missouri, I can't help but sound different, if that makes sense. And I'm in far too conflicted of a position to be able to proclaim if Minnesota or Missouri more closely aligns with the way of Jesus in this passage. But I think the point Jesus is getting at in this passage is that if your accent doesn't match, you might not be from the place. If you sound like you're from somewhere else, you might not actually be from there. And if we don't have a concern for the hurting, for the vulnerable, that matches the concern that Jesus had for them, then maybe we've not fully understood who Jesus is. Maybe he's not forming our lives to the extent that he calls us to be formed by him. If our default position towards those who are less fortunate than us is disgust or annoyance or looking the other way, even if we would say we follow Jesus, it might be worth pausing to wonder if that is how Jesus views them and if we need to realign our view to be more like his. Because rejection of the life Jesus describes here leads to separation from him for eternity, which is not the life we were created for. If you notice, when Jesus is describing eternity with him, there in verse 34, he makes the statement, come into this dwelling. He says, it is a dwelling that has been prepared for you by, by God for all eternity. Come and join in this creation that was made for you. But if you jump down to verse 41, he says to those that are being condemned that they are to be sent to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that might be a minor detail, but I think it's one that is worth pointing out. We were not made for hell, and hell was not made for us. We were created to be in the presence of our God. And I don't say that to minimize the reality of judgment. Those who have rejected life with God experience the consequences of that choice. That's very clear in this passage. But God did not create us to be apart from him. He created us to live as he has called us to live. When we follow Jesus, when we do what he says to do, we are living as we have been created by our creator to live. We're not just jumping through hoops here on earth so that we can get to the eternal destination we're looking forward to. We're called to live in the present as we were created to live in light of the eternity that awaits us, prepared for us by our creator. That's the life Jesus calls us to. A life characterized by love for God because love for God always leads to love for people. And that statement is not intended to say that loving people is all that matters. It's not intended to say you have to earn God's love by doing good for others. But what we see here and what we see across Scripture is that someone who has truly encountered the love of God will demonstrate their experience of that love through their love for others. Especially for, towards those who can't do anything for them in return. That's the truth of this passage. And if we're being honest, it is simple enough. The issue is figuring out how we respond. So I want to reflect on what this passage is saying about Jesus, at least some of the things it's saying about Jesus, and then reflect on how we respond to what it does say about Jesus. Because if loving God always leads to loving people, we need to get right what this passage has to say about God so that we can get right what it has to say about our love for people. 
So what's Jesus telling us about himself? Well, I think first, if nothing else, he's telling us that he rules over all things. He is the Son of Man who will one day take his throne. This talk of caring for the hurting is not a call to just be nice to people so everyone will like you and you'll get along with everyone. It is the king of the universe giving the marching orders for how his kingdom is to function. Jesus is not presenting suggestions. He's not presenting one good option among many. He is speaking as the king and showing us how to experience life in his kingdom. But not only does he rule over all things, but he desires us to live with him now and in eternity. He is our king, and we had rebelled against him. He could have abandoned us, but he did not. He came to earth to save us out of sin and death and into life with him, but he did not just come so that he might give us a free pass on our eternal destiny. He has so much more in store for us if we will listen to him, because eternal life in the kingdom starts now. He desires us to be with him for eternity, but beyond that, he desires us to live life with him here and now, experiencing life in his kingdom in the present, saying yes to our king each and every day as we walk with him by faith. And Jesus gives us a portrait at the end of the story, at the end of of what the end of the story will look like in this passage, but it's so that we will know how to live in the here and now. And as he shows us how to live in the here and now, he shows us it is with a concern for the hurting. Because he is concerned for the hurting. He calls us to care for the least of these because that is what he cares about. Those who have the deck stacked against them, those who can't help themselves, those who can't get a leg up because they don't have a leg to stand on, those are the people Jesus calls us to care about because they are the people he cares about. Those are the people that Jesus identifies with. So if that's who Jesus shows himself to be in this passage, how do we respond by grace? And I use that language of responding by grace intentionally because I think Jesus is calling us to right actions, to good works in this passage, but he is not just calling us to be nice to others. He's not just calling us to get, or excuse me, he is calling us to get involved in the nitty-gritty of the lives of others so that they can be healed, but it's healing through the gospel. So we can't do right actions if we are not doing it by grace. So how do we do that well? Well, first, we respond with every part of who we are. Each of us have different talents and gifts and interests, and that means we'll respond in different ways, but we all respond with every part of who we are. He does not allow us to just respond intellectually, saying, yeah, I agree with this in theory of all of these things, but I'm never going to act on it. I'm never going to do anything about it. And he also does not allow us to only respond with actions, to say, yeah, as long as you're nice to people, it doesn't really matter what you believe about Jesus. He calls us to respond with every part of who we are. And he calls us to do that as we act towards others as he has acted towards us. Caring for the least of these is not just the first idea Jesus had of an idea to give us something to do as we sat around and waited for him to return. It is how he acted on earth. It's how he has acted towards you and me. He came to us when we could do nothing for him, when we would never be able to pay him back. And he calls us to move towards those around us in the same way so that they can know that Jesus desires them to move closer to him. And as we do that, that might cause us to reach across the globe. That might cause us to just reach into our own backyards.
And we've done that in a couple ways, even in the last few weeks, and have opportunities to do it here in the next few weeks in light of who Jesus is and the opportunities around us. You all did this in the last few weeks as we packed shoeboxes to send all over the globe. And I don't know if you thought about it or not as you were going to the store to get things to put in that shoebox, but you were putting together something tangible that would go who knows where across the globe to show a kid who might have nothing, that they are loved by someone, and more importantly, they are loved by God so much that he sent his son into this world for them. And we also have opportunities in our own backyard. We heard from our friends from the landing a few weeks ago about the work that they're doing with those experiencing homelessness in Rochester. And they shared with us about all the needs they have as they're moving into their new facility. And since they've been here and they've continued in that process, they've shared with us that one of the needs they really have right now is they don't have enough gloves on hand to give to people that come into their facility. And so I don't know about you, but maybe... I don't know what God is doing in your life, but maybe the next step of walking with Jesus is just going to the store and buying a bunch of gloves, or at least one pair of gloves, so that the landing can give them to people who are dealing with homelessness, who have no other way to just get their hands warm. Not just to do a nice thing for someone, but to show a physical demonstration to someone that they are loved and valued, and that Jesus came to earth for them so they might be healed in every part of who they are. And Ike will have more information about that in announcements. Um, Maureen is on the hook as well if you want to talk to her about what that looks like here in the next couple weeks as things get colder. Because as we care for others with every part of who we are, and in light of how Jesus has acted towards us, we do it for their sake and not for ours. Jesus is not saying here that here's the checklist you have to, here's every box you have to check if you want to get into heaven. If our approach to this passage is, well, this doesn't sound all that fun, but I want to go to heaven, so I guess this is what I'm going to do, we're probably missing the point, because the point of this is not for us. The point of this is not, this is what you want to do if you want to go to heaven. The point of this is how you can be a part of showing the healing available in the gospel because of the love of God for all of us. We don't do this for our own sake. We don't do this to make much of ourselves, but to make much of Jesus as we participate in life with him. And it's on that note that we come to the end of this series. Whether it's today or over the last few months, I hope you have had moments to reflect on who Jesus is and what his kingdom is about. But as always, it's up to us to discern how to respond. And it's been said that the message of Jesus always calls us to belong and become. And I think when we look at this parable, when we look at all of the parables as a whole, we see those two things and asking ourselves those two questions are worth reflecting on at the end of this text, and at the end of this series. So I will leave us with these two questions. First, do we belong to Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to the God who has come like a sower sowing seed, calling you to bear fruit? Do you belong to the Father who welcomes home a son who ran away? Do you belong to the vineyard owner who rewards everyone regardless of how much they have done to deserve it? Do you belong to the host of the banquet who is inviting everyone, no matter who they are or what they've done, to come and join the party? Do you belong to Jesus? 
And if your answer to that question is yes, and I hope it is, then the second question is, are you becoming who he has called you to be? Are you becoming the kind of person who loves others like a Samaritan caring for someone left for dead on the side of the road? Are you becoming the kind of person who forgives much because you have been forgiven much? Are you becoming the kind of person who cares for the least of these, my brothers and sisters? Jesus calls us to belong and to become. And I hope for you, for all of us, that you would belong to him, that you would become who he is calling you to be. Because it is only when we do that that we are truly healed, that we are truly okay with him for eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your son to come to us when we had nothing to offer to live and to die and raise to new life so that we might also be raised to new life with you forever. God, we ask that you would impress those truths upon us. Even in these next few moments, Father, would you help us connect the dots of how this intersects with our own lives, where we are right now, so that we might respond by grace and love others as you have loved us. We thank you for your son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.